guys. Welcome to Slash Report. I'm Prue, and this week I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime, MK. Hello there. Hi. It took us a little bit to get our act together with the technology this week, but we're so glad we managed to get it together because our very special guest this week is Betsy Rosenblatt of the OTW. Hello there. Hello. Thank you so much for taking the time out to uh, speak with us today. Oh, I'm very happy to. This is stuff that matters to me, and it's fun to talk about. Yeah, there's just a lot of, um, there are a lot of interesting sort of dates that are coming up. International Fan Works Day is coming. Yeah, happy to, really excited about that. We're headed toward two million works, right, on the AO3? Uh, that sounds right. Uh, wait, maybe even, I think, more than that at this point. That's so many. Yeah. <laughs> That's so many works. It's, uh, it's so impressive to me how generative the fan community is like how much making happens it's so wonderful yeah there's a huge creative energy um that drives a lot of this and it's it's and i think that um at least when i started in fandom it was much more um i guess dissolved into the larger web you know there were very specific communities for like gundam wing and x files or like filk or whatever you all the people who are 20 are like what's filk um like (laughs) (laughs) showing my time don't go there i know like show uh, web rings um and now it's all thank you betsy thank you but now that it's all kind of a lot of it is being corralled into one location with um ao3 you're really getting a very interesting insight into like how massive um the population is well and how uh diverse the population is as well I think one of the things about that sort of granular world is that you don't get a sense of how many different things there are because there are so many of them and they're far flung. When you start pulling them together, you see not only how large the group is, but how many of the subgroups there are yeah, absolutely. and how different they may be from each other. <laughs> yeah, we. so before we even get into this, um, we... I was telling Betsy about this before we actually got onto the call, but we solicited for questions beforehand and MK and I had to make the executive decision to just strip out all the feature requests. (laughs) (laughs) Like so many of you people did not listen to us when we told you not to send us feature requests. Like ask questions, but not feature requests. And they're like first 20 things. We're like, can you add the following? I was like, no. Yeah. Like, can you do like tag filters? I was like, me personally, no, probably the person calling us also will not. So before we even get into this discussion, listeners, we're not going to get into specific uh, feature requests. We're here to talk about the overarching organizations in general. So everyone who is already mad at us, feel free to check out right now. And if you um, do have some feature requests, uh, the archive of our own group uh, is always happy to receive them. You can send them to support, and they will be delighted to receive them. It doesn't necessarily mean they can put them into place, because uh, there's a lot of requests uh, yeah. and <laughs> not a lot of people to work on them. But uh, you, the support team is uh, is always happy to hear what you want. So. Proving immediately that Betsy is a trained lawyer and much more politic than I am. <laughs> um, so actually, that's a good segue into how we begin. Betsy, you are a lawyer. Um, what do you exactly do with OTW? I am the chair of legal. So first, let me tell you what the legal part of the OTW is. Uh, as you no doubt know, the Organization for Transformative Works is the umbrella organization that has 
a number of projects, including the Archive of Our Own, also including uh, Fan Lore, which is a fandom wiki, and Open Doors, which uh, imports uh, and preserves older uh, or uh, at-risk uh, fan work archives and brings them into the Archive of Our Own, uh, Transformative Works and Cultures, which is a peer-reviewed peer academic journal, and what I do, which is uh, legal advocacy, where we um, protect and defend fan works and fan culture from commercial exploitation and legal challenge. So we do uh, a lot of filing briefs in court, filing commentary with uh, the U.S. and other countries' governments about the state of the law. And uh, so we are involved in advocating for fans and fandom in the legal context. The other thing that my job entails as uh, the legal department of the OTW is that I'm basically the general counsel of the organization, and there's a, t a team of volunteer lawyers. I'm also a volunteer. It's a team of volunteer lawyers with me who do both the advocacy and the internal work. So what is, um, just for our understanding, would you be able to give us a couple of, because I know there were some recent big um, legal kind of wins. Do you want to walk us through one recently just so people can kind of get an idea of the sort of um, briefs that you're writing and what the results are? Absolutely. Uh, the legal process is slow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, briefs that we're writing and what the results are are sometimes actually pretty far divided from each other. Uh, some of what we're doing or what we have been doing most recently is uh, we've done some filings uh, with the United States government and with the uh, European Commission and uh, European Union government about uh, copyright policy making. We've had two big wins lately that are really exciting. Um, one is uh, a involves a tiny bit of explanation of a somewhat complicated corner of the law, for which I apologize in advance. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but uh, in the United States, there's a law called the, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, which is by and large good for Internet service providers, and uh, the Archive of Rome would qualify as one of those, uh, because it gives them a safe harbor from... Uh, from being shut down over for copyright reasons for things that their users post. And that's good, and it comes with a lot of problems surrounding the notice and takedown system, which you've probably heard of. And as a matter of fact, we're soliciting uh, information from users, which I'll talk about later. But another part of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act makes it illegal, as a matter of copyright law, to circumvent technological protections on copyrighted works, which includes, for example, cracking the encryption on DVDs and Blu-rays uh, to make vids. And as a result of that, every three years we have to go in and ask the Copyright Office for an exemption from that law, uh, which they have given us now three times, uh, and it is now legal, hooray, for bidders to crack DVD and Blu-ray and streaming service encryption in order to make non-commercial bids. Um, so that's a really exciting win. It's a giant hassle that we have to go back and do it every three years, 
but we have been consistently successful in it, and it's something we're really proud of. So this is something that we'll have to do ad infinitum going forward until there's a until there's a more significant change. Yeah, yeah. The the law will require this. The DMCA will require this every three years in perpetuity, unless and until the law is changed. Oh my God. Yes. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> so I have a related question about that, just because fan vids are such a an unusual area of fandom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so obviously you're getting this exemption for say pulling like clips of a TV show, putting them into a, a remixed video. Mm -hmm. What about the, the music that people are overlaying on fan vids? Oh, that's a good point. Uh, so that's not part of this dispute. That's not part of the, uh, the exemption request, uh, requirement because you don't have to decrypt that, right? Uh, there's no technological protection. You don't have to break through any sort of walls to get to the music. Uh, so that was never banned by the DMCA. There's, of course, a question as to whether it's fair use uh, to make a fan vid uh, to, or to use music underneath a fan vid. Uh, we would strongly argue that it is, and so that it is a legal use of the music. Uh, but it's not part of this proceeding because it's not tied in with the, uh, it's not tied in with the encryption rules. Right. Is that like a question that you've had to deal with before, though? The legality of the music tracks on FanVids? Yeah. Um, well, uh, obliquely, yes. There hasn't ever been litigation about it, uh, but frequently FanVids are the subject of takedown notices under that other part of the DMCA. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, so people get their FanVids taken down, uh, because they have a track underneath them, and uh, we've helped people figure out how to counter-notify and argue that their use is fair use. Uh, sometimes they prevail and get it put back up, and sometimes they don't, and there actually isn't a whole lot of rhyme or reason to those results yet. But there hasn't been any, uh, there hasn't been a test case, so to speak. Uh, yeah, I, I think that just from my own personal, you know, anecdotal knowledge of this, I think that a lot of the takedown approaches seem to be really randomized mm -hmm. and sort of like a very broad stroke approach toward things. And unfortunately, a lot of time, I mean, because a lot of these takedowns get executed over YouTube, mm -hmm. um, as far as I understand it, I think YouTube's general response is to just immediately comply. And so if you do get taken down, a lot of times it's not necessarily, like, I think the instinctive response is like fearfulness. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of times you should think about it a little bit more and maybe even reach out to the OTW for some advice because it, you may not be in trouble or anything. They could just be using a very blunt instrument to look at this. And the DMCA is a very blunt instrument. We're happy to help people out. Uh, we can help give information. We can help give some instruction. And if you want lawyers to actually represent you, we can help uh, connect you with those. But absolutely, getting a takedown notice is not something to be afraid of with one caveat, which is that uh, some internet service providers have sort of multi, you know, three strikes or multiple strikes policies um, that can be sort of frightening because uh, you could have your entire channel taken down or you could, uh, or that sort of thing. And that's, that's worrisome and that's something we hope to combat. But it brings me to the next victory, uh, the other really <laughs> big victory, which is in a case uh, called Lens versus Universal, which has been going on for many years many years. Uh, it's 
a shockingly old case. Wait, I think I know which one this is. Oh, I can't wait. Talk about this. Uh, so this is the case where um, a, a mother put up a little video of her her toddler son dancing to the Prince song, Let's Go Crazy. And uh, this is, I think, demonstrates that certainly using uh, a song, you know, and a, a good chunk of a song can absolutely be fair use. Um because the first thing the court did when uh, Universal, who, who's uh, Prince's music uh, publisher, sued, I think it's a music publisher or the owner of the sound recording, I don't remember which, um, when they sued, the first thing the court said was, of course this is fair use. This isn't even up for debate. It's a, it's a slam dunk case of fair use. And we've been litigating since then for, I mean, this kid is now in high school, I think. Um <laughs> I, I wish I were exaggerating. Uh, oh my God, his online legacy. How amazing. Right. And we've been litigating over what the standard is for how much examination of fair use someone has to do before issuing a takedown notice. Because the story in that case was basically, it was, as you say, a very blunt instrument. Uh, in that case, it was a human just looking for every time Prince's music was used, but now it's done almost exclusively by computer programs. And once they notice that the song is used, they send out a, uh, a takedown notice without even thinking about whether uh, it might be fair use, as certainly that video was, and as we think fan videos are as well, um, or at least uh, the vast majority of them will be. Uh, and so they... They shoot off this thing, and you're required by law to to say, when you send out a takedown notice, that you have a good faith belief that the that what you're taking down is not authorized by law. Fair use is an authorization by law to do what you're doing. And that last bit, the fact that fair use is a right that is guaranteed to people. It's not just a defense. It's not infringement, but it is simply not infringing, and you have a right to make a fair use of copyrighted material. That was said very clearly in the uh, in the most recent, uh, and this was just near the end of 2015, holding by uh, the court. So uh, that was a very exciting victory. The next step in that case, believe it or not, it's not over. Uh, <laughs> it's never over. <laughs> Maybe his grandchildren will finally see the end right. of it. Uh, is that we argued that uh, this this ruling was by the United States Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is not the Supreme Court. It's the step below the Supreme Court, um, uh, saying that someone uh, needed to have a subjective good faith belief that the use that they were taking down wasn't fair use. And we filed a brief uh, together with some allies arguing that uh, subjective fair, a subjective good faith belief of fair use isn't good enough. There should be some objective, reasonable good faith. For example, you should have to know what the law is in order to say you have a good faith belief that it's not fair use. So we filed right, a brief so just there. To, just, to, <laughs> just to break this down a bit into more... Um, 
into more kind of like uh, layman's terms. Understand layman's terms. Thank you for that. Yes, I was losing my word. Yes, we're trying to. The work here is trying to shift the burden of responsibility to those filing the claim. Yep, that there is actually a violation of fair use instead of having a presumption of a violation of fair use. You have identified it perfectly. Perfect. That's it's it's a good step forward, and I'm really excited to hear that because I remember being. I remember like the X-Files being one of the very first fandoms that had a spate of takedown notices from Fox for their fan mm-hmm. communities because they were one of the first online fan communities that you could find. And it was terrifying back then. Um, so this is a really great, fantastic step forward. Good job, guys. Thank you. Well, we had uh, a lot of partners in it. We were, uh, we were among uh, several groups, including some, uh, some groups that are allies with us frequently. And by the way, the law puts that burden on the taker downer uh and uh all we're doing is arguing that that law should have some teeth uh, <laughs> excellent so excellent yeah. um fantastic so even though i could keep asking you nerdy legal questions for ages i'm going to spare our listeners um <laughs> and let's talk a bit more about the OTW and AO3, which I think is the primary method through a lot through which a lot of people interact with the OTW. And so I was reading this to MK before we ever got you on the phone, and I was saying we have to talk, we have to clarify this a little bit. So originally, when we found out that we were going to be able to get someone from the organization on um, to talk with them and interview them. We had sent out a request for questions, and this was during some recent upheavals with the board membership and things like that, which we will touch a little bit on later. But one of the questions we got was someone asking what the dissolution of the OTW would do to the archive. And I think MK and I looked at each other and we were like, we should get Betsy to talk a little bit more to clarify the actual relationship between AO3 OTW, and then to give us a little insight into OTW's structure, because uh, the AO3 is not the OTW, correct? The AO3 is part of the OTW. It's one of the OTW's projects, and it should come as no surprise, uh, it certainly comes as no surprise to me and probably not to anyone else that it is the way that most people interact with the OTW, because there are, I'm looking at the site now, uh, more than 754,000 users uh, so, yeah, sure, that's how most people are going to uh, interact with the organization, and it makes a lot of sense. Um, it is uh, certainly, as I mentioned before, not the only thing the OTW does, uh, but mm-hmm. it does use a lot of the OTW's resources, and it's a big thing. The OTW is absolutely 100% dedicated to making it run and run well. Um, and so uh, that relationship is uh, sort of we are the parent organization the same way that mm-hmm. we're the parent organization of the journal and we're the uh, the parent uh, and, or at least the host of the fan lore wiki etc and the OTW itself is a registered nonprofit organization yes uh, which to be all legalistic uh, we are a mm-hmm. 501c3 nonprofit corporation which means that when Americans donate money to us, uh, they can donate, they can, uh, deduct that donation from their taxes. Uh, and it also means that, uh, no one who works for the organization, uh, is, the organization is not making any profit off of this. 
Um, and as a matter of fact, the organization has no employees. It has all volunteers and a couple of contractors, including uh, one coding contractor who works almost full time on uh, keeping the archive running, but, uh, but no actual employees. Okay, so then I have a question, which is, um, well, not so much a question, a statement. Can you explain a little bit about like how a board relates to the OTW? Because I think people don't understand governance and boards. And I know that's a little dry, but I think it would be really helpful <laughs> for people. Boy, I am really, uh, see, these questions aren't dry for me, but you're right. I think they probably are for the rest of the world. Um, I will try not to make it dry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, and, and I should be able to do this. I'm a professor in my, my, I'm a law professor most of the we time, right? So I present yeah, to people you. all the Teach time. Us. <laughs> um, so, uh, the way governance works is, um, loosely speaking, uh, we're incorporated and as an, as a nonprofit corporation, um, we need to tell the state of Delaware how we operate. So we have articles of incorporation and bylaws that define the structure of governing the organization. Uh, and we have to follow those because Delaware tells us we have to follow those. Um, and uh, one of the things that we say there, is, and this is a very standard way of organizing a nonprofit, is that there is a board of directors uh, who manage the, uh, the large-scale governance of the organization, and there are officers who are responsible for uh, specific tasks within the uh, governance. So, for example, there's a treasurer who holds the purse strings of the organization. There's a secretary who keeps minutes of board meetings and things like that. Um, there's a president. Similar positions to like a high school election, right? Very. Or like a student council? Very similar to a student council. And the way our board works, which is uh, not the way every board works, but this is the way ours works, is that uh, they are essentially an executive committee. So if you think of this as being a little bit like the government, uh, they're the president. Um, and uh, all of the day-to-day -day operations, uh, or almost all of the day-to-day -day operations, are delegated to committees. Uh, and so each of the projects has one or more committees working on it. I'm the chair of the legal committee, which makes me the sort of legal head. Uh, and then there is, uh, there's a support team and an abuse team, and the AD&T is what we call the coders uh, who work on the archive. There's a committee in charge of fan lore. There's a committee in charge of open doors. There's a committee in charge of the journal. Um, it's like everything. Everything has a committee. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Everything is run by a committee, and all those committees report to the board. Uh, there's also a volunteers committee who is responsible for making the committees. Committees. <laughs> of course. So, so like you said earlier, except for the contractors, there are, I mean, you don't, contractors versus employees, but the the board members are not getting paid yes they are not getting paid a cent okay so they are a volunteer group of people who basically steer the organization yep you got it okay so uh in a situation where say hypothetically most of the board has to resign 
it doesn't mean that the organization is over. It just means that you like replace those people. Yes. Uh, absolutely. And in fact, um, the, there is the, the board is elected, uh, by the membership, which is one possible way of, of having a board. Um, and there is a lot of board turnover. Historically, there has been because every year there's a, an election and some people come in and some people go out. So, uh, the idea that there's new board members coming in and old board members leaving uh, is not at all an unfamiliar one, and it's one that the organization has uh, procedures for handling. What happened last year was unusual because uh, the because all of the board members were going out and all of the new board members were new, and so there was an overlap between the boards. But that's the only thing that's new about it. Actually, the uh, Board turnover procedures are something that have been uh, that have been happening uh, and happening smoothly uh, since the organization began. I do have to say, though, I mean, and before I launch into this line of questioning, something that Betsy and us we had discussed previously is that we want to go ahead and let people know that um, this interview has one of those like DVD commentary uh, disclaimers on it where the opinions expressed on this commentary reflect the actors and the producers and not necessarily the overarching OTW organization itself because they're only like there's only like maybe one person who can truly speak with the collected voice. I, but, I cannot um, speak for the board for example. Right. Absolutely. Um, and keeping in mind listeners because Etsy is essentially the general counsel we also have to respect attorney client privilege in this one so there may be some areas we can't get into but I think it is relevant to raise the question it wasn't just that there was a board turnover in this latest round it was that we got new people and then there was um, because of how like one board seat was filled there was a lot of I guess there was a lot of friction there and then people left again and now as what is the current state of the board? And I think that part of the reason people are really curious and somewhat concerned about this is because even though there is frequent board turnover and a lot of it is very cyclical on purpose, this just felt like a lot of change all at once and very little historical continuity for an organization, for a group of people that do have to steer the organization that runs all of these very important projects that mean so much to the fandom community. Oh, absolutely. And so actually two things uh, jumped to mind as you were asking that question. One is that I didn't actually fully answer the previous question, uh, which is uh, what happens uh, if the organization dissolves? And the answer is it's not going to. Uh, it's, it's not. Yeah, so everyone relax. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the, take a deep breath. <laughs> uh, for a few reasons, actually. Um, and one has to do with, uh, we're going back to this very dry subject, but one has to do with um, uh, Delaware law, uh, which is that, in fact, uh, the last person to leave can't leave. Uh, if you're... <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. uh, so there's a so there's a, a concept called fiduciary duty, which means that you can't just the the, the leaders of a nonprofit uh, incorporated in Delaware cannot just abandon it, and in fact that's not uh, what happened here uh, either. But uh, the organization's actually in very good health, so people need not worry at all about that. Um, and uh, you know there's a there's a, a very experienced uh, and very large group of volunteer staffers who. Uh, who would keep things running even 
in, uh, in great turmoil. Uh, as for the current board, it's actually comprised of very experienced people within the org. You're not allowed to run for board unless you have been on the volunteer staff for at least nine oh, months. Oh, so Orlando Jones can't be a board member. Uh, he cannot be, unless he wants to volunteer for at least nine months, uh, <laughs> which I mean, <laughs> he doesn't. He, but, uh, he, he said he was interested in running for the board. So. I know. Uh, I, actually, I actually corresponded with him about it. <laughs> Are uh, you serious? <laughs> Did you crush his dreams personally, Betsy? Please tell me. No, I, I think I crushed his assistant's dreams. But, uh, <laughs> no, it's, we have a very friendly relationship with him. Um, and, uh, that is a great sentence. I'm so happy that that's recorded. Like, that I'm so happy. I'm going to make that my ringtone. <laughs> uh, but it's uh, but no, he's actually not qualified to be on the board. Uh, he could He could be an advisor or an ambassador in some capacity, and I think that's something that uh, maybe in the larger uh, thoughts for the future, but may not be. It's really not how it's not how this organization is structured. Um, the way it's structured is actually for exactly the reasons that we've talked about. We because the board is an executive committee that steers the organization operationally. We really need people in that position who know how the organization operates. And right. so uh, this new board. Uh, is comprised of very experienced people who have been running uh, and uh, very actively involved in uh, several different areas, uh, including uh, the AO3, uh, for, for a long time and have been very successful in making those operate smoothly and well. So I have a lot of faith in them. Um, and uh, And it's true that they have less institutional memory about how the board itself works, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. They're, they're very good organizers. Um, they're, they're coming in with a fresh slate. Yeah, and they're coming in with the knowledge they already had, and there's plenty of continuity, for example, myself, uh, who, <laughs> uh, who have been uh, involved throughout and can, uh, can make sure that they are not short on institutional memory. So, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I I think that one thing that it's important to draw the distinction on for people who are listening to this who may be less familiar with the structure is that even in like a worst case scenario, all like all of the board gets abducted by aliens overnight, <laughs> all of the committees are still going to be there. Yes. Um, and you have this vast network of volunteers who have been working on this project you know, for a long period of time. And even if, like, God forbid, like, the reptilians get the board, like, there will be <laughs> some historical knowledge how to, like, we can rebuild. <laughs> absolutely. That's absolutely true. Yes. Okay. That's very interesting. I think that, but I, I think that this brings us to another component of why there is this fundamental sort of, like, tension and disconnect between a lot of the people that the OTW services and the and understanding Service of how this... Very different. <laughs> <laughs> serves. Serves. Correct. <laughs> the OTW serves and advocates for. And, um, oh my gosh, I was trying to be so, like, not a pervert on this call, but it's already, like, my Too bones late. don't have it in them not to be a pervert, apparently. So, I think that part of the reason there's this disconnect I is there's whether 
I mean, I guess the question goes to you, like, do you think it's fair, this perception that there has been traditionally a lack of transparency? And I know that whenever it comes to these sorts of issues, there's always kind of a, you have to meet us halfway. There's only so much people can do to be transparent about their activities. And then the, you can't, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but they do have to drink. Um, so is there an effort underway to make sure that people are more aware of um, how the organization runs so we can sort of put to bed a lot of these anxieties? Or do you think that there has been sort of like a, you know, previous failings in terms of how to communicate with the membership and the users that are being addressed now? Uh, some of each. I think that uh, over the course of the organization's history, it's gotten a lot bigger. The growth, mm -hmm. it cannot be overstated how quickly the org has grown and how quickly the membership base has grown. And so... Wait, before you go on, just so we have some context, when was the, the OTW actually incorporated? It was incorporated on September 5th, 2007. Yeah, so it's been, it's been like less than a decade yeah. well, for this yeah. nonprofit organization. Yeah. And in less than a decade, we have uh, grown... Uh, beyond, I think, uh, the expectations, certainly, of the founders uh, and, uh, and of most of the people who were involved in it initially, um, you know, 754,000 users of just one of the projects uh, is yep. really tremendous. Um, and the fact that we now have a, you know, a significant voice in lawmaking around the world, uh, I think that's uh, something that... We, wouldn't have anticipated, and certainly the size of the volunteer base and the size of the membership has meant that things that would have been transparent uh, in the beginning simply aren't anymore because you can't speak to, uh, you know, many thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people at once without the possibility of misunderstanding, without having to really think about how you say things. So I think that um, there there's no question that there's uh, room for a much more transparent form of communication that doesn't that isn't as likely to cause misunderstandings on one hand on the other hand uh, as you said you can you can lead a horse to water and that's where it ends uh, I think there's a there is no amount of information uh, that one can provide that uh, is necessarily satisfying uh, because a lot of things have to be done on the fly on, you know, quick email exchanges. And those aren't things you can consult the public about, and nor would they want, nor would anyone want that. Right? <laughs> People want things to run smoothly, and to do that, they have to take place quickly, which means they have to take place uh, often behind closed doors. I will say, though, that uh, this board, particularly the new board members, uh, I think 100% of them ran explicitly on a pro-transparency platform. They're really dedicated to including the membership in uh, the information loop as often as possible. Frankly, more often than I as a lawyer might like them to. And that's, uh, <laughs> that, that's the way it goes. <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, if we can talk a little bit about the elections. Sure. Um, I know, so like I paid pretty pretty close attention when the elections were first happening before any of the drama. And I would get these emails that were like, here's how the elections work. And I started reading them and I was like, no, this is so dry. And there's a lot 
here and I just, I can't, I can't right now. And I just skipped over it. Um, can you like explain to us a little bit, like in a condensed, like in a for dummies way, how the elections work? Sure. Although I am not, uh, I am, that is, this is not quite my area of expertise, but I think I know, uh, at least the, the for dummies version, which is, um, that every member gets a vote. Uh, and in order to be a member, you have to donate $10 or more, uh, to the organization. And, uh, that automatically makes you a member eligible to vote. Uh, and your, everyone's vote counts exactly the same as everyone else's vote. Uh, which I think is wonderful. Uh, so you, the voting is done online and, uh, there is a sort of complicated statistical weighting system that is, uh, where you, you rank your candidates, uh, and, uh, that all sort of, that is fed into a computer that there's some, actually some really kind of fantastic infographics that explain this far better than I could. Um, but that spits out the top uh, results, and the top results are elected. Uh, the, the number of slots that are open is decided by the board ahead of time uh, based on how large a cohort uh, they want and need at any given time. Uh, so this year, there were two board members elected. In previous years, there have been more or less. Uh, and uh, so that's... Just for our operation. understanding, is there... Is there a set number? It's like, what is the, I guess, what is the set term for each board member? Is, is there like a term limit? Pardon? Two years? Three. Okay. So three years is the term limit. And, well, it's not um, a term limit. It's a term. So they could be reelected. Got it. So one term for a board member is three years. They can be reelected. And it seems that what you're saying is that the actual size of the board may vary given on needs of the organization. Exactly. There, there will mm -hmm. always be at least one board member, uh, but there may be more than that. Uh, and that's going to depend on the needs of the organization. Gotcha. As defined by, as decided by the board. <laughs> um, I, I think that one thing that, so I'm going to start getting into some of the questions that we received now. I think that on the heels of talking a lot about the election, um, which was pretty contentious this year, but hopefully we're in a state where people can kind of focus on getting back to business now. Um, one of the questions that we got from Peace Slasher uh, was, what is the morale like within the OTW? Um, I know that a lot of people, this is her, I know that a lot of people have publicly stated that they're happy with the new officers and optimistic about the board's organization's future, but what's the consensus? Um, do people who actually work on, you know, within the organization feel like they're set for a better working experience within the organization? I actually don't know. Uh, I okay. am optimistic, <laughs> uh, personally, and I think, uh, my, my team, my legal team is, uh, is, you know, all, all systems go. Uh, mm -hmm. I think there is a sense of sort of, at least I feel a sense of, of general liking of the people who were elected, uh, and feeling confident that they, uh, will, will do well. But I actually uh, don't have that much interaction with everybody. So I don't really know. Uh, okay, that's completely yeah. fair. 
Um, I would suspect that legal doesn't know that much about coding and vice versa for very <laughs> obvious reasons. Yeah, we, we write the uh, contracts for the, when we, when we hire a contractor, <laughs> we write the contract. Um, and actually we, we have very, the legal is actually one of the, uh, after board, one of the, uh, departments that has the most contact because whenever someone has a legal question, they come to us. Um, <laughs> so we actually do have contact with all of the other uh, committees over the course of any given year, but it's about the legal issues usually. So, um, so actually, since you do mention that you guys worked on the contract for the contractor, um, no specifics on uh, what the contract was about, but from a sort of bandwidth issue, I, I know that they've hired one person. Does it, do they anticipate needing more? I mean, just I'm I'm just thinking about the numbers at play here in terms of the active users on archive of our own, if nothing else, and then sort of I'm thinking of massive times when the archive gets hit um, with like Yuletide projects yep. and things like that, or any time that there are code fixes being pushed out. It just seems like so much infrastructure being run through you know, volunteers who necessarily have other demands on their time and like who knows how much opportunity they have to really dedicate to, the, to these various things. This just seems like an organization that is so large. I just wonder whether, do you know whether or not there are anticipated plans for more people who are actually paid in order to work on this on a more consistent basis? So that's not my decision to make. Uh, it would mm -hmm. be the board in conjunction with the, uh, the AD&T committee. Uh, I would, of course, help, be glad to help with, uh, with bringing on any additional contractors. But I, I do think you're absolutely right that it's so impressive what these volunteers manage to do um, to make, uh, you know, you, I know there are a lot of feature requests and that sort of things and a lot of bugs identified, but it is so impressive just how well this works and the scale in which it works considering how... Uh, how small the team is that actually makes it run. Um, the the contractor we have is uh, is doing a great job uh, and is mm -hmm. working very hard. And I think that uh, if there's if the budget would allow for it, I would uh, I think there would be a reason not to bring on someone else. That said, uh, it's a pretty tight ship budget wise, and uh, so there isn't. Uh, I, I think that would have to be a decision that is part of a much larger analysis that obviously the board would do, uh, looking at how much money you have to operate, because of course, paying someone, uh, at a rate that would allow them to spend all their time, uh, would be a huge chunk of the budget. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, I think that's a good point. Um, although, I mean, now that you raised the question of the budget and completely aware that we're running up against some topics that may be hitting confidentiality and may just be outside of the scope of your particular awareness, I think that one of the things that came up as a major point of contention during um, the last, you know, during the last election was specifically the budget, where I think that what like one of the most significant ways that I think a lot of members and users on a day-to-day -day basis of OTW services sees the organization show up is usually during fundraising drives. Mm -hmm. So the elections came up right around fundraising. There was some hullabaloo around that too. Yeah. But there's a, there's a pretty, I think there's a very legitimate question around 
how is all this money being managed? And it does feel, I mean, even as the organization is exploding in terms of like the user base that it's supporting, it does feel sort of weird that we don't really know where any of the money is going <laughs> and that we haven't really had like a formalized budget to look at for a pretty significant, I mean, like there's forms that are filed um, for legal reasons to maintain um, 503C, I think, status, but not really like a breakdown or communication to the community as to like what things are actually, you know, being paid for, or, like being fed into. Do you have any insight on that or like would you be able to provide any clarification around that? I- I'm happy to, um, I- at least what I know and can talk about. Yeah, um, what you can speak to. So the organization since 2007 has always had a budget, but it's been a very informal process. Um, and right. as a small organization, that was fine. Informal budgeting uh, really wasn't uh, a problem. And uh, we have always actually been telling the world where the money goes because we have an annual report that describes <laughs> our expenses. Um, and so... That sort of annual report is the source of information that the public generally gets about a nonprofit, about how they spend their money. Um, and that's something we've always done and, and have uh, always been very happy to do. Uh, more recently, as the organization has gotten larger, I think it's become apparent that a more formal budget process is necessary. Um, <laughs> right. And that's something that uh, the membership base has wanted to have access to, and I certainly understand why. And it's something that uh, the organization really began doing in earnest in 2015. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it began doing that in earnest uh, when it, it hadn't done enough of it to please the people asking the questions because they had really just started doing it. When people mm-hmm. started asking, where's the budget? We said, well, we, we started working on it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> um, and so, uh, and, and I think that uh, it was particularly diff- difficult for the person who was the treasurer at the time because she was the new treasurer. So she was coming in and already pulling together information from the previous treasurer's tenure and sort of figuring out things. Um, and not to go into uh, into anything uh, uh, that beyond that, uh, I think yeah. that it's been uh, a a very active process within the organization of putting together a more formal budget. Uh, and the, there is a a new new treasurer uh, mm-hmm. who is taking over and is very dedicated to uh, to making the budgeting procedure work smoothly and uh, and as openly as possible. Um, so just to update the listeners, this is from the, all of these board notes are publicly available, by the way, to everyone who's listening and who's interested in finding out a bit more about this. The first me- uh, meeting minutes from the uh, the first, I guess like the first meeting of the year um, are online and they did give a little bit of information about um, budgeting stuff. So the notes from the open session section of this say that transfer of accounts is getting sorted out. Um, There is some work on finding and hiring a CPA also progressing, which is um, a certified public accountant. So that's good. Um, They provide some numbers in terms of the actual, you know, financials of what 
the OTW, I guess, has and is holding, and that on the budget update side, nearly all budget requests have been collected, and a draft is in the works, hopefully ready for review by the end of the month. So keep an eye, keep your eyes peeled by the end of January. Perhaps we will have that clarity that people have been requesting. Yeah, and I think, uh, again, I'm speaking only for myself here. I have, <laughs> I have seen, hopefully by the end of the month, uh, the uh, uh, mean that is what I hope and not what you should necessarily <laughs> get. Right? Uh, but I don't know whether that's the case here. Um, and I have, as I say, I have, uh, I, I, I have a lot of faith in, uh, mm-hmm. in the new board and the material who's coming in to do this work. So, uh, and I know that they're, uh, whenever the information comes out, if it is later than anticipated, uh, it is not because they're trying to hide it. Right. <laughs> Sometimes it just takes a while to pull this information together. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this is not a hide the ball group. Got it. So uh, pulling out from the very narrow focus on like day-to-day activities, I think um, one thing that someone, an anonymous person had asked us over Tumblr, which I think is kind of an interesting question to pose to you, is what do like and you can specifically speak to your experience only i suppose but what is kind of the motivating drive for the ao3 staff in terms of what they do you know do you know if the majority of people are uh longtime fandom people or like how do they get involved in the organization and like what you know what drives it so i don't actually know what the motivating factor is for all for the ao3 people as i am not an ao3 person uh, okay, so right. let's let's take a let's take a wider range than that yeah. the, for the OTW in general, then. Uh, but but I think I can I can extrapolate a little bit that the, the drive for the uh, almost everybody and I would I would hazard to say everybody who volunteers for the org is a fan um, mm-hmm. and loves fandom and wants to support fandom, um, and that's sort of the driving thing behind everything. I think the the AO3 people in particular, many of them already work in IT. And this is an opportunity for them to use their skills to advance and assist uh, fandom more generally in their fandom specifically. For me, uh, why I got involved with the organization and why I basically do uh, a, a part-time job for free, and it is a huge <laughs> job that I do for free, that I spend a lot of hours on this uh, for free, <laughs> um, is, is because... I want to make the law better, um, mm-hmm. and I want to make sure that the law is the... It's not so much that I want to change the law, but I want to make the law as it is the best it can be. And there are places around the world where I do want to change the law. Um, and as a lawyer, as a law professor, as somebody who's really interested in legal policy and who is also a fan, this this is the place where I can be a part of that process of making the law work for fans and for everybody. I actually think that what we're doing, uh, it's it's a byproduct, it's not why we're doing it, but what we're doing (laughs) is actually making the world a better place through fandom. Um, And, uh, you know, people want to uh, tinker with their tractors without being disrupted by copyright law. We're helping them, too, even though they're not fans. They're fans of tractors, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> tractor fandom tractor fa- you you make that joke but john deere was a very serious thing yeah where i grew up oh yeah. no i am not judge i have two john deere hats 
Sunhead. You know what? I'll ask you about that later when we are not on this podcast. Well, they were a gift. Like, let me tell you that John Deere is a, is a sort of a villain in this uh, copyright situation because they have what? They have worked really hard to uh, prevent tinkerers uh, and customizers and farmers from breaking the encryption on their tractors to repair them themselves. So MK, burn your hat. Right. So is no, I was just going to say this is similar to the thing where people want to like modify their PlayStation, right? Yeah. And yeah, or their Sony Kindle or like, something you know. like that. Yeah. So it's the same thing, right? We want people to be able to make vids. They want people to be able to, or, or you know, the tinkers want people to be able to fix their tractors. And the same way that, uh, you know, Fox and Universal are resisting our anti-circumvention arguments. John Deere is resisting the tractor people. And so we're all actually working together. I'm, I'm very friendly with, uh, with some of the people working on other areas of the DMCA because we're all in this together. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it makes beautiful. sense. It's all like one goal, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that actually kind of um, dovetails nicely into another question that we got. And I, I suppose you can largely speak to this from a legal perspective. But as a fan, I'd love to get your opinion in general. Another Anon... Um, asked us what um, how the landscape with regards to the response um, to fan works has changed in the past decade. Is it more accepting, less or more complex than that? Well, I could spend the whole hour on this. Um, <laughs> but I think that um, one thing that's changed is as fan works have become more visible, um, there is a there's a population and a significant population fueled, I think, largely by uh, mainstream media outlet that is absolutely baffled about why people want to give things away. Right. right? Why people <laughs> don't want to make money on this. And of course, a lot of people do want to make money on fandom. Um, but what the OTW is most concerned with and is, uh, you know, most passionate about supporting is are the fandom communities that are involved in non-commercial sort of gift community, uh, you know, for the love of it type activities. And, um, and I think there's a lot of puzzlement in the world at large about, well, why does anyone do anything for free? Uh, and, uh, and that's, it's fascinating because that's not the narrative in 2007. In 2007, the narrative was, uh, if anybody had even heard of fan works at all, was, oh, uh, those people are unoriginal, or they're using someone else's ideas and it's not fair, or they're all perverts. Um, yes. And... Somebody tell that to, like, every Hollywood director who has made a remake of a previous movie, because that's basically Absolutely. fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, well, and now everybody recognizes, or not everybody, but I think the prevailing view recognizes that fandom is original, and fandom is, uh, you know, not copying, that it's doing something really new and exciting and different frequently and talking back to dominant culture in many instances and highlighting things and that are not what the original creators might have intended or meant. And uh, the, the pervert thing is still there. Uh, <laughs> but now the As question... As always. Right, but now the question isn't um, what's wrong with people there... Uh, they're copying. Now it's what, what what's wrong with people? They're not capitalists. Um, and it's so it's an interesting shift, I think, an interesting sort of uh, 
shifting the dialogue about fandom. They still think yeah, they're doing I, something wrong, but for a completely different reason. I mean, they're, we're just like, we're not greedy enough, apparently. I'm going to be very interested to see where this goes in like the next, I mean, five or ten years, because I, I think more and more it's i mean i think mk and i have been very vocal about our general like fight club mentality toward fandom like we're very supportive of organization for transformative works for its legal protections of various projects but like given my druthers i'd be like let's never talk about this um in public but that's becoming not an option you know like there have been you know more and more there have been you know mainstream media incursions into fanish spaces and a lot of fanish spaces that invite mainstream media incursions and other sort of um just people who typically did who do not find this place through self-selection um so that'll be a really interesting process in like the next decade to 20 years to see how that develops as things go along yeah i agree yeah. So another question that you may um, have some really interesting insight for our listeners on, we got a question from someone who is anonymous on Tumblr asking, um, fan works are constantly being misappropriated by unwanted parties, often by corporations who wish to earn money or organizations who want to bring unwanted attention onto fandom. So that's a lot of, you know, anytime someone writes like a news article citing One Direction nodding fan fiction Jezebel, for example, um, do you have any tips for fan creators who want to kind of avoid this sort of attention. And I mean, my knee-jerk response is like, there's very little, I mean, if it's out there, there's not much you can really do, unfortunately. Well, I think that's partly true. Um, there isn't that much you can do because nothing is, uh, nothing is secret, uh, on the internet, right? You could, you could keep thing every, everything in lost in, or sorry, you could keep everything in locked uh, posts in live journal, but then only old fogies like me will ever see it. Um, yeah, it'll be like you, me, and MK. Right. We'll have an opportunity uh, <laughs> to read it. No one else. <laughs> uh, I haven't even moved to dream with yet. That's how old I am, right? Uh, Good lord. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, sorry, that's, uh, that's a joke for all you old fogies out there. Um, but, so, okay, if you want to avoid attention, you have to avoid attention on one hand. On the other hand, um, fan works are copyrightable just like the works they're based on. If you write a Harry Potter fan work or you make Harry Potter fan art, you don't own a Harry Potter but you do own what you added. And so if someone appropriates your work, you have just as much of the of an ability to issue a DMC t- DMCA takedown notice against them as they do against you. Um, so uh, walk me through the hypothetical here. I'm I'm guessing like so the 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 two scenarios that I sort of see right that you most commonly see are like if let's say Lev Grossman decides to give me another aneurysm and write like an in depth review of like slash fanfic in Time Magazine, which would just like I'm thinking about it is bringing my blood pressure up. <laughs> That's going to be, that's going to be, that's going to fall under fair use. Yes. Even, so, just like. But, no, absolutely. Lev Grossman can write, can review fan fiction the same way that, that fans can review the magicians. Um, Right. And, uh, and that's a good thing. Uh, And what that, part of that is the, that because fan works have now been, sort of by the fan work creators put in public spaces 
and that's good, it means that they're subject to the same critiques as other things in public spaces. So we can critique the magicians, Lev Grossman can, can critique us. Um, I think it's fair to judge fan works by a different standard sometimes and not other times. Uh, one right. thing but that if I, someone is lifting wholesale your work... Absolutely. You can, right. you can issue a takedown notice, and in fact, that's something that fan artists in particular have, I think, had to think about as... Uh, you know, if you put your work up on Tumblr, it can get reblogged infinitely, and that's the way Tumblr works. Uh, but if you put your work up on DeviantArt, you do not expect someone to uh, make tote bags out of it and sell it. Uh, and so that's... Would this also apply, sorry, to, like, the situation where, uh, let's say, a popular singer Instagrams somebody's art without crediting them? So credit isn't actually relevant here, believe it or not. Um, hmm. yeah. so, uh, this is another area of the law that I hope isn't dry, um, but, <laughs> uh, copyright infringement is, uh, copying someone's expression, that is to say, the specific thing they've done, uh, without their permission. Plagiarism is copying someone's idea without crediting them. Copyright infringement is illegal. Plagiarism is not. It's immoral. It's bad. Don't do it. But it isn't actually governed by law. So giving someone credit does not make your work any less infringing. Uh, failure to give someone credit doesn't make your work any more infringing. But certainly, from a moral and ethical standpoint, credit is important. It just isn't important from a legal standpoint. Right. I think this is one of those really interesting moments that I see because um, I work, you know, my background is in the media. So I ran into a lot of like fair use issues like this in the past where I think that because of the sort of gift economy and um, the general sort of like friendly, um, always give credit uh, approach that fandom reacts to things, there's there seems to be a little bit of confusion around like, well, this person didn't give me credit. So this is obviously copyright infringement, which not necessarily. It's a violation of the social contract. It's a violation of fandom Absolutely. norms. <laughs> and it's, it's, again, it's bad. Don't do it. Uh, but it doesn't make it infringement. Um, right. Yeah. So actually on the fan artist thing, cause this is something that I see quite a bit and does go around a lot. Like a lot of times, you know, even organizations and companies that should know far better um, will find some cool art on the internet and start putting, slapping it on t-shirts. If you are a fan artist and you are either running into this or concerned about it, is there anything that you can go ahead and do to, A, like, make yourself less vulnerable to this sort of infringement? And if you have suffered it, what should be your next steps? Um, so I think to, if you really want to avoid it, um, mm -hmm. you have to not put your work out there, and that's not a good. That's not a good answer. That's not a satisfying answer. Um, no, it's a chilling effect. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that for the most part, uh, it's a it's a worthy compromise. You think like, okay, well, I'm putting myself out there, and that means I'm putting myself at risk that people might use my work in a way I don't like. That's what. Right? That's what the entertainment companies do, and we've used it in a way that they might not like, and that's so it's sort of a fair turnabout to some extent. Except 
the credit part. There's actually one, I mean, you want to force people to give you credit. Uh, there's one way you can do that, which is by Creative Commons licensing it. Uh, mm. Creative Commons uh, is a way of creating an automatic license. It permits people to use your work, your copyrighted work, on certain conditions. Uh, one condition, for example, of one of the Creative Commons licenses is uh, you can use it, but your use must be non-commercial and you must credit me. Uh, mm, okay. And so that's the uh, non-commercial attribution license, I think it's called. And there are a few of them. They're sort of, uh, if you go on the Creative Commons website, you can find it. But that's a way of announcing to the world that no one can make money on this and you want credit. Now, if somebody violates that, uh, then they violated it, and you have to go after them, and that's no fun. Mm -hmm. um, but that is, uh, so that's a way that you can signal to people that credit is important to you. Um, if you don't do that, you would go after them for copyright infringement. So you, could do, you could issue a takedown notice. Uh, you could, if they're, for example, if they're selling your fan art on Zazzle, you would issue mm -hmm. a take down notice to Zazzle, um, and that's how. So, you how do would it. one go? I'm I'm so intrigued by this. So, if I am if I am fan artist A, and some jerk has slapped my brilliant drawing up on a mug and is making money off of it on Zazzle, and I haven't put a Creative Commons license on it, how would I go about? putting taking like creating a takedown notice would i need to contact an attorney or is that something i can do on my own it's something you could do on your own by the way um because i'm a lawyer and you know we have all these rules about it i have to specify everything i say yes, is merely information do. and not legal <laughs> advice uh but uh so please if you want actual legal advice consult your own attorney uh with that said um you every site has rules about how you can complain. Uh, for example, the AO3 has a DMCA policy that says if you think that uh, your work is being infringed here on the AO3, here's how to issue a takedown notice to us. By the way, almost no one does because uh, everybody knows that what's on the AO3 is, is fair use. Um, and when they do frequently we write back and say, uh, this is fair use, are you sure uh, <laughs> but Zazzle has one of those too. And so you would go to Zazzle, you would look at, uh, what their procedure is. It's usually pretty straightforward. You have to fill out a little form. You probably have to do a CAPTCHA to prove you're not a robot. And, uh, and then they will either automatically take it down or they'll review it and get back to you. Um, and, uh, Pretty much every, I would say every legitimate site has one of these. Uh, right. There are there are certainly sort of piracy focused sites that want to make it hard for people, um, but uh, legitimate sites, by and large, have procedures that may be slightly burdensome, but you don't actually need a lawyer to do them unless you want to offload that responsibility to someone, which you probably don't because lawyers are expensive. 
That is a very true point. That's a very true point. So I think that we have a couple of like really quick rapid fire questions. Okay. And then I want to talk a little bit more about International Fan Works Day because I think that's coming up pretty soon. Yeah. Um, so one of the questions that I thought was really interesting that uh, our listeners wanted to know, how much fan work or do you actually consume? How did you get involved in this organization? So I am a Sherlockian. Mm-hmm. Ah, old school BBC old school uh, Arthur Conan Doyle Arthur Conan Doyle right. I, was a, I was actually I was born into Sherlockiana um, I became a member of, of the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes when I was 18 I think oh wow yeah <laughs> so uh, so I'm a, I'm I have and by the way old school Sherlockiana um, uh, much of the Fan activity um, uh, revolves around what I think most people would now call meta, um, which we call the great game, which is writing essays and mock scholarship uh, based on the uh, on the presumption that Sherlock Holmes was a real historical figure and that uh, Watson really wrote the stories and that Conan Doyle was his literary agent. Right? That's the <laughs> fantastic. That's the great game is sort of the the underlying principle of. of a good deal of old, old school Sherlock. I had no idea, and that is so cool. Yeah, <laughs> that is really cool. Uh, so I, I consume quite a bit of that, and then I also, uh, a, you know, I'm a huge. I actually blog about television. I'm a huge television watcher and fan. Um, and so uh, I, there's like there isn't a show that I haven't watched. Um, uh, said with some measure of regret that we all feel when we're look, <laughs> looking at our TV viewing habits. I I watch them all, and then I decide whether I'm going to keep watching them. Which means, wow, some of them I got to watch that stuff. But uh, yes, <laughs> uh, but I get to develop my righteous anger about that if I want. So I'm a huge yeah. media consumer, um, and I also uh, I love uh, I love fan fiction. I love vids. Um, I, I'm a real sort of vid appreciator. And I keep mm. thinking I'm going to become a vid maker and I keep not having time to get uh, really good at it. But I am, uh, you know, I go back to filking um, and I make, I've at various times made um, fan audio montages and things like that. So uh, I sort of uh, both make and uh, appreciate animals a great deal. Oh, fantastic. And just for the people who are like under the age of 30 who don't know what Filk is, Filk is like fan music. Yeah. It's, it's you, you know. It's writing fanish words to existing songs. At least that's how I think of it. There are, I, I think, uh, I think that there's some people who write their own music too, but I have always just associated it with like fanish music. Yeah. It was kind of a yes. big thing in Xena fandom. Yes. Well, that that kind of makes sense, though. I feel like it was a big thing for, like, Xena, Hercules, like, those types of... Yeah, and, I mean, there was a lot of singing, surprisingly, in those shows, so it did make sense. <laughs> so it lends itself to it. Yeah. Like calls to like on those shows. There you go. I mean, the Joxer song on its own is already pretty spectacular. So one of my favorites. I love that song. Joxer the Mighty? I'll, oh, it's yeah. It's going to be my final thought before I pass from this mortal coil. <laughs> That that's my goal. Right. So, yeah, yeah. we'll talk about Xena eventually, listeners. I promise. Everything um, I've done, you know, all the lyrics I've written have been natural. So, 
Um, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so that was one. Um, another one <laughs> that I feel like I want to ask you, but I'm, I'm very curious to see what your response is. Um, what is the most ridiculous AO3 tag that you have ever seen? Uh, I don't know. There's so many options. I actually <laughs> have, have you ever. No, I, I, I have no comment on that. Not because I, it's like a no comment thing, but I forget things very quickly. And I frequently will look at these tags and say, like, oh, that's amazing. And then it flies See, out of my head. The best thing about this, about that particular question, is three separate people asked us that. It's like, wow. I have three different, yeah, I have three different anonymous questioners who were like, what is the weirdest tag you've seen? <laughs> um, and I will volunteer one for you guys. It was a weird combination of tags that I think came up in Hannibal fandom recently, which were prostate massage <laughs> followed by platonic cuddling. <laughs> so it's really more the clash between those two so, <laughs> that makes it so perfect. It's gonna be I'm a very big fan of the, uh, yeah. yeah. There's a generator that will, like, if your life was an AO3 tag, what would it be? Um, oh and I've gotten some really interesting results on that one, including, like, non-sexual polyamorous cannibalism. And I was like, what? <laughs> that has to be Hannibal. Like, it has to be, I hope. <laughs> I just... I mean, now I'm going to, thank you. Now I'm going to want to go find that. But <laughs> You're welcome. Let's, I, I'll, I'm going to make a note for myself later. Um, <laughs> but one of my very last rapid fire questions was, what are the OTW's major upcoming projects that we should become aware of? Which I think is a nice segue into International Fan Works Day. Uh, that sounds perfect to me. And I think inter we're going to be doing some things for Fair Use Week and Copyright Week probably coming up. Um, but absolutely, and oh, and a couple of us in March are going to be at South by Southwest, if people are going to be in Austin. I'm going to do a panel oh, cool. there. Uh, another legal staffer, Heidi, is going to do a meetup, a fan meetup. So uh, we really hope that uh, people who are going to go to South by yeah, Southwest uh, can, can take part in that. Um, but yeah, I think International Fan Works Day is the, is the next big thing, and it's something we're really excited about. So do you want to, for people who may have not heard of this before, do you want to give them a, a little brief overview of what exactly International Fan Works Day is? So International Fan Works Day is uh, February 15th, uh, right? You get your, your Valentine's Day love and then you get your <laughs> fandom love. Um, and uh, so uh, International Fan Works Day is something celebrated across time zones, across fandoms, across types of fan work. Um, and there's going to be a few events that we're doing this year, um, and uh, I'm sure that other people are going to do them. We'll signal boost them. So if people have, you know, meetups or uh, other online events that they want to do or anything like that, they should let our communications team know so that we can do a big sort of, hey, here's what's happening on International Fan Works Day. So a few of the things that we are uh, planning on doing, and you'll see some of these have to do with um, with the OTW, some have to do with the AO3 specifically. Um, one is a feedback fest. Uh, so uh, if you, there's a work that you love or that you enjoy or that you have something to say about, uh, leave a comment on February 15th or specifically between <laughs> February 10th and yeah, 15th. Guys. You want to give people a window to do their feedback fest. Um, uh, you can do a Rex post, um, a recommendations post, 
or uh, link to uh, some of your own recs or feedbacks or put feedback on AO3 stories using the AO3 um, comments. Um, so basically, this is a share the love uh, thing. Uh, but the idea is like, you know, uh, sh share your love for, for, the, for the fan works you love um, in that uh, early February time. Um, and if you've been thinking like, oh, I like this, but I, I never got a chance to, to tell the person who made it that I love it, this is the time to do that. Exactly. Uh, another one is um, a short fan works challenge. Um, and uh, so these, there are just a few sort of examples uh, posted on the AO3, uh, sorry, on the... Um, OTW's uh, news section right now. Yeah, I think the the example is just create a short fan work on what does your favorite character or favorite pairing get fanish over, and it's an exactly. invite to do a haiku, a drabble, a little sketch, short vid, audio work, or whatever format for February the fifteenth, and tag it um, hashtag ifd share. Yeah, um, and again, we're hoping this is gonna be a Cross platforms, so tag it on Tumblr, tag it on Facebook, post it on Dreamworth if you're uh, or LiveJournal, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, Snapchat it if that's your thing. <laughs> um, wherever you wherever you are uh, active in fandom and have your fandom community, sort of whatever you whatever your character gets fanish over, um, or what your pa pairing gets fanish over, um, write that up in a short thing. Um, and if you post it on the AO3, tag it with International Fan Works Day 2016, which is a tag that it already exists. Uh, so for people like Prue, short is less than 300,000 words. All right. You know what, MK? Some of us have a really hard time pulling the parking brake on our stories. And it is something that I'm working through. And it is not very kind of you to mock me in this public forum. No, I actually did try to write something short and I'm like 30,000 words into it. So it's just like I'm a disaster and it's never going to happen. That's, um, that's admirable in some ways but not short no not at all yeah. it's also yeah. um it's also going to be great when one day i have to have like an rsi surgery done and someone asks me how i've managed to do this to myself <laughs> and i'm gonna have to say writing, writing um hannibal porn yeah. is how i yeah. managed to do this to myself it's a moment that i'm really looking forward to in my adult life let me just tell you guys that's great uh, <laughs> a friend of mine this reminds me uh slightly off topic but a friend of mine um is a video gamer and uh his wife went out of town for the weekend and he played all the way through some like big game i don't remember what it was and he said so um my wife went out of town and i gave myself carpal tunnel <laughs> not the way you think <laughs> that is fantastic that's like one this also off topic but also related to video games um, so like my parents never, like I didn't have a video game system, uh, at home, which is probably why I managed to graduate from middle and high school, um, knowing my bad impulse control and self-control issues. But like, I remember one weekend I went over to my friend Andrea's house and they had just bought an N64 and Mario Kart yes. and it was a sleepover. Yes, it was a sleepover. And I just remember everyone else was asleep and I must've played <laughs> 16 solid hours 
of Mario Kart alone. (laughs) And, like, by the time my parents came to pick me up, like, the the old N64 controllers had, like, the two thumb things, the two thumb (laughs) control things. My thumbs hurt. Like, I could not really move them, and I had trouble writing for, like, two days. Good. Because I had, like, damaged myself so thoroughly. Which, like, really did not help my, like, subsequent requests for an N64, because my parents (laughs) were like, no. We let you be in a room with one for, like, a day, and look what you did to yourself. That's okay. uh... We do not want you hurting yourself. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) When Katamari Damacy first came out, I, like, went downstairs. Like, I bought it, I started playing, And I just remember, like, I was playing for a really long time, and I got to the end credits where you're just, like, rolling up, like, the clouds on the planet. (laughs) And my brother walked in, and he was like, what are you doing? And I looked away from the screen, and I realized, like, my whole body just, like, shut down. I had not moved, like, from 9 a.m. to, like... 8 p.m. and I was like my bladder my eyeballs like everything is in agony (laughs) oh my god (sighs) not sure whether that says something good or bad about these games but clearly they're effective yes they're very engaging let's let's stick with that one um the last so we've got three other things that we're doing for, for international fan works day that I just want to tell you about um one is um Throughout the next, uh, up until International Fan Works Day, um, the OTW is collecting essays about what fan works mean to you. Um, and that's a huge sort of broad question, and we're hoping that to get a really broad set of answers. But um, the communications team is going to be distributing guest posts um, about that between now and February 15th and some of the results. Um and uh, so if you want to participate in that, you can use that hashtag IFDShare for what FanWorks mean to you, uh, little essays. Um, uh, the legal committee, so close to my heart, <laughs> um, is putting out a call for stories from fans worldwide on how the notice and takedown uh, experience impacts fandom so if you or anyone you know has had an experience with notice and takedown with having your work taken down having a work that you love taken down how have you felt about that how have you reacted to that sort of what's that like how does that impacted your decisions going forward um we're doing this first because we want to know but also because the european union specifically has um has a comment period on uh, the, on notice and takedown and other IP enforcement things, and uh, we want to use what people say and uh, incorporate those reactions into whatever we decide to file with the EU. Oh, fantastic, guys! So yeah. definitely, definitely. How? So, what's the best way for them to get that information to you guys? To email their stories to us at uh, legal at transformativeworks dot org. So, guys, get typing. I know a lot of you have stories on this front, so <laughs> get ready to share them. And yeah. um, on the What Fan Works um, Mean to Me front, I think the first one of these was just posted. So if you guys want to go check it out, they're under the news section at OTW already. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing is on February 15th itself, um, the org will be hosting a chat in the public discussion chat room, um, and it's going to be sort of 
wide-ranging, you know, share fan works, play games, but it's going to be basically an open chat um, on February 15th. Um, and there's, again, the, the, the times when it'll start and end are going to be, uh, are posted on the news site, but the short version is you could get to go to the OTW public discussion chat room and hang out with fans all day if that's, uh, if you can and if you want to. Party down, folks. So. Get hyped up yeah. on sugar. Post uh-huh. Valentine's <laughs> Day discount sugar. Roll up into the chat room and get rowdy is, I think, what Betsy is suggesting. That, that's what I'm suggesting, yeah. Um, so I always like to give people a last um, question. And for you, I think, um, I'm really curious to know, what's on your wish list going forward for the OTW? You know, I think that there's some really basic things that most nonprofit organizations want, like more money and, you know, resources and things like that. But what do you think, what can the Fanish community kind of contribute to the org to really help it? So my wish list is, has to do, I think, a lot with the law. Mm. And I think I want to see... Shocker. uh, And I think will be, right, yeah. But I think, (laughs) I want to see fans and fandom having a significant and respected voice mm. in the global intellectual property law discussion and being respected uh, as a, as a legitimate and appreciated form of of creation and innovation. And I think we're actually really on our way there. I had, this is something that's happened since 2007 when we started doing this um, has really grown and I'm really excited and I think what fans can do to make that happen is contribute to things like this with you know the call for stories one of the the probably my favorite thing that we've ever done uh, is we submitted to the United States Patent and Trademark Office which is one of the US intellectual property agencies uh, a submission for what's called a green paper. Mm. And it, we did, it's about 85 pages long, maybe even longer, um, using people's stories to explain to our government what fan works accomplish, what they mean, what they do, how they allow people to develop their own voices, to find themselves, to develop skills, to make friends. Um, and to really, uh, self-actualization is a super cheesy way of saying it, <laughs> but that fans make people into themselves. Fan works and the ability to make fan works helps make people into themselves. Mm. And, uh, and we sent this to the government and, uh, when I've talked to people who've read it, I've talked to people who, you know, in those agencies who read it and they said it was really moving and powerful. And the reason it was moving and powerful is because the fans sent us moving and powerful material. We didn't have to work to make this happen. It just came to us and we put it together because it was already that moving and powerful. And so getting those stories so that we can consolidate that truth and bring it to the world around us is something that I really, um, that I, I know people can do and want to do so uh, so that's my wish i think that's fantastic and i think what a lovely way to close out our conversation betsy thank you so much for your generosity and time today we've so appreciated it my pleasure this has been and, so uh, fun 
Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Um, guys, I think that wraps us up for this week. But in case you missed Slash Report during the week, I don't know why you would. You can find us on Twitter at Slash Report. You can find us on Tumblr at Slash Report, even though we don't post anything there. Um, and until next week, bye. bye. bye.